This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning. It's uh, my pleasure to be with you. My wife, Rebecca, and I uh, flew in yesterday from New York, which is in the United States. Um, Just having fun with you. Um, in any event, uh, uh, we have uh, good friends, David Kim and Christine Lay, who are part of this congregation. They were part of our congregation in New York. Uh, sad that they aren't with us, but uh, glad to be experiencing their hospitality all the same. But great to be with you all. Why don't you stand, please, as we listen to God's word being read. In the gospel according to John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for... The servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is God's word. Please be seated. Uh, I don't know that you'll know this name, but there was a British guy by the name of Malcolm Muggeridge lived in the 20th century. He was an author. He was a journalist. He was a satirist, and he was converted to the Christian faith somewhat later in his life, around 70 or so. And shortly thereafter, he wrote a book entitled Something Beautiful for God, and it was about the life of Mother Teresa. He had spent quite a bit of time with her in India, and I've always been captivated by that title, found it intriguing something beautiful for God. That's what he described her life as being. And it strikes me that for any of us who are followers of Jesus, striving to walk in his ways, that's what we should desire for our lives as well, that they would be something beautiful for God, something that shows forth his beauty in the world. Jesus uses a similar metaphor here when he talks about fruitfulness. Because what is fruit if not beautiful in its own way? And beyond that, it's refreshing, it's vibrant, it gives life. 
And Jesus is saying that is to be the nature of your lives in this world. They are to be something beautiful for God. Paul, playing off of this metaphor, goes on to describe what that fruit might be. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And for the life of me, I don't know why any human being, regardless of what their own faith beliefs might be, wouldn't want to have those things marking their lives. Uh, that is a life lived fully, lived beautifully, lived well. And yet, those of us who try to live lives like that find ourselves thwarted pretty frequently. Because, well, uh, the baser aspects of who we are, uh, the desires that are off, uh, seem to get the better of us. And those of us who have tried hardest feel the most resistance to becoming those kinds of people. And yet what this passage tells us is that God not only desires that we be fruitful, but he is committed <laughs> to us being fruitful, right? I am the vine, says Jesus. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. So that's what we want to look at today is how do we get to that place where our lives are something beautiful for God, where they bear fruit. And we want to look at two things in particular. First, we want to look at sort of what God does to enable us to bear fruit. And that's always foundational. That's always primary. But secondly, we want to look at the things that we are called to do in response to what God has done in order that that fruit might be born in our lives. So those two simple things, what God does to make us bear fruit, and secondly, what we are called to do in conjunction with God in order that our lives might be something beautiful for God. So first then, what does God do in our lives to make them fruitful? And look at the imagery here. It's a vine, a vine dresser, a gardener, and branches. And the imagery of a vine and a branch is, is a rich one, right? They are, they are intertwined with one another. They are sort of inseparable from one another. They flow into one another. It's an organic image. You don't know where one begins and the other ends. They're profoundly united to each other. That's what's going on with a, a vine and its branch. And that imagery points to one of the more sublime truths of the Christian faith, one of the more profound Truths. One of the actually really more astonishing truths, which is simply this. God desires to make his home in us. God desires to dwell in us. He desires to sort of unite his life with ours so that we can't nearly see where one begins and the other ends. This organic uniting of himself with us. And you see, if the miracle at the heart of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus. The miracle at the heart of the Christian life is this. God makes his home in us. God resides in us. God makes his dwelling with us. In other words, a Christian is not just a person who believes certain things, though that's, of course, part of what it means to be a Christian, but there's something far more profound, glorious going on in a Christian's life. God has made his home with you. The God of the universe has taken up residence in our persons. He unites himself with us. Remain in me, says Jesus, as I remain in you. And of course, he's just 
continuing on what he has said earlier in this gospel, where at one point he says, in that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. God makes his home in you. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. Christianity is all about the life of God in the soul's of human beings. Now, it's an astonishing claim, uh, almost too much to take in. It strains credulity in some ways to believe that that would be true. And yet, it is the sole basis for fruitfulness, for any hope, for change in our life. Uh, left to your own devices, left to my own devices, my goose is cooked. <laughs> There's no way that I'm going to change. No. But what the passage here is telling us is that you are not dependent on simply the resources that you can find within yourself. No, Jesus dwells within you. The Father and the Son have made their home in you, and therefore you can expect fruitfulness. As a matter of fact, it's inevitable. Because you see, when this is the core reality in our lives, you would expect nothing other than this. So for instance, if you tell me that you have an elephant living in your home, and I were to walk in, and yet everything would be completely calm and decent and in order, nothing would be turned upside down, that it would look completely like an unaltered place, there'd be good grounds for me to be suspicious about whether you had an elephant in your house. You know, similarly, if I claim to have an elephant in my house, and yet I walk into my apartment, and everything is completely just looking fine, uh, nothing disrupted, nothing disheveled about the place, uh, I would have some suspicions to wonder whether my own claim was true. And of course, that is actually something we wrestle with in the Christian life. If Jesus dwells in me, why is there so little change? <laughs> I feel like there ought to be a lot more. After all, this is the God of the universe, the one who has spun the planets into their places, who has made the heavens and the earth, who is, uh, has the power over the crashing waves of the sea, he is dwelling in you and in me. Why is there more change? We're going to get to that later. But here we want to simply start on this note of hope, that this is the fundamental reality of your life if you have bowed the knee to Jesus, that he has come and he has made his home in you. He has bound up his life with yours. That is at the heart of the Christian life. But if that mystical union, which is how the theologians describe Christ's indwelling of us, is the internal and primary source of fruitfulness, the primary thing that God does, we also recognize, need to recognize that there are other things that God does to make us fruitful as well. And here we read, my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. A gardener doing their work of pruning. He says that too is something God does. Not only does he take residence up in you, he prunes you. And this most certainly refers to, well, the hardships, the difficulties. Uh, pruning, you know, is a sort of a painful thing that goes on in our lives. And yet the passage tells us God is at work not only internally, but ex externally, in the events of our lives, the circumstance of our, of our lives, and he uses that also 
uses those things, the hard things, to make us fruitful. But there's one thing we need to notice before we spend some time thinking about that, and that, that is there is this initial pruning work that Jesus does in our life before that secondary pruning work can be effective. And it comes across in this verse here. Jesus says, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. It seems a little bit out of place, but actually the word clean there is the exact same word for prunes. <laughs> he says, you're already pruned. And what he is referring to here is the fundamental work he does of bringing us to ourselves, where we essentially die to ourselves and come alive to him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I became a Christian, uh, I wasn't particularly excited about it at the time because I was not that old, but I was a 19-year-old, and there was a bunch of things in my life that I didn't necessarily want to give up. I liked calling the shots in my life. I didn't want someone else telling me what was right and what was wrong. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I was happy in many ways to put myself first. And yet the good news is Jesus tracked me down. We had this great song that we sang about the reckless love of God. There's an old poem by Francis Thomas in which he refers to Jesus as the hound of heaven, the one who pursues us and comes after us and he wears us down and brings us to the end of ourself, which is a good, good place to be brought. Because when all is said and done, if you're just living for yourself, well, there's no real life in that. That's a futile way to live. Uh, it's a meaningless kind of life. It doesn't lead to anything. And so, thank God, <laughs> he awakens us to, uh, to see this, if we're lucky about ourselves, brings us to the end of ourselves. But it's a kind of death, right? Uh, you die to self, take up the cross, deny yourself, follow me. That's at the heart of the Christian life where we give up on all of our self-salvation projects. We recognize, no, I'm not a savior. I can't save myself. I'm done with my work of justifying myself. No, I bow the knee to you, Jesus. You alone can do what I can't do. I can't change myself, but you can. And so Christ, while we are yet sinners, dies for us dies a criminal's death in our place, takes our condemnation upon himself that we might be forgiven and brought into this new relationship, friends of God, as Jesus says here. And for what purpose? Why does he do that? Why does Christ go to the cross? Why does he condemned in our place? Well, ultimately, so he can take up residence in us. That's why he does it. Now, I don't know if you've ever had someone ring your doorbell in the middle of the day when your house was not ready to be seen, uh, where things were a bit disheveled on the inside, where maybe you haven't cleaned in a while. Uh, and, uh, you know, the person says, hey, can I come in? And you say, mm, I think not. I think I'll come out to you. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's somehow when we think about Jesus making his residence in us, we think, are you sure you really want to do that? There's like some pretty unsavory things in here. I'm, I'm not sure that this is the best place for you to be hanging out. Let me see if I can clean my act up a little bit and get it together before you would do such a thing. You know, and, uh, and you know, that's our, our tendency to do that. And yet, uh, that is not what Jesus does. Instead, it's a bit more like this. You know, in New York City, we have the subway system. And occasionally, there'll be a homeless person who is sleeping in a subway car and 
hygiene, not necessarily the best. And you can recognize these cars by the fact that usually at the one end of the car, there is no one. <laughs> and everyone, if there's anyone in the car with the person, is down at the other end because they want to keep as great a distance as possible uh, from, uh, from the, the odors, the experience of that person. And so if a person were to come into the subway car and go and sit right at the feet of that homeless person, you'd think that was crazy. You'd say, are you in your right mind? But you know what? That's exactly what Jesus does. He looks at the horror of who we are the ugliness that's in there, the avarice, the greed in our hearts, the lust in our hearts, the selfishness in our hearts. But he doesn't back off. No, he moves towards us. Uh, our, our sin doesn't send Jesus scurrying in the opposite direction. He, the great news is that he always moves towards us. He moves towards the horror that we are, and he takes on the horror of the cross that he might address the horrors in us. That is his promise. And so this is that beginning work he does. And that's where he begins to bring us to life. Because you see, if a branch or if a plant is dead, or if a vine is dead, doesn't matter how often you prune it, it's not going to become fruitful. So that's foundational. But then he goes on to do this pruning work. And that refers to the difficulties that we go through, the hardships that we experience in life. And those are inevitable. I don't care who you are, you face them. It's a relationship that's come to an end. It's a job that you're fired from. It's having a difficult time making ends meet. It's actually maybe just besetting sins in your own life that seem to get the better of you, habits you try to break, and they get the better of you again and again. And you just, th these things can, can throw us for a loop and, and cause us to wonder whether God's there. But the good news is God's right there in the midst of those things working in our lives. You know, and one of the places we frequently experience difficulties, of course, is in our relationships, whether it's our marriages, whether it's with a child, uh, whether it's with a sibling or in a friendship or a coworker or just that person who gets under your skin on a regular basis. And, you know, so often our tendency is to think the difficulty is with them, that we're the perfect peach. And if they would get their act together, everything would be smooth sailing. And yet, no doubt, yes, no doubt, there are probably things that they need to get their act together in, but that's completely the wrong approach. Uh, the right approach from a Christian perspective is to recognize that the conflict is not primarily with them, though it might feel like it. The conflict is primarily with yourself. In that confrontation, there's a self-confrontation where your own irritability, your own impatience, your idolatries, your desire for pleasure or comfort or peace are all being brought out. Your selfishness is being brought out. And being exposed so that, yes, you have to face them, but actually you can also be healed of those things as well. That is the pruning work that God does through the difficulties of our life. Ultimately, it's an encounter with yourself so that you see, again, the things that are dwelling within you, all the unbeautiful things, so that, again, the source of beauty himself, God himself, who is residing in us, might both from within and from without make us something beautiful for God.
You know, I fancy myself a bit of a gardener. Um, uh, we actually have a garden in Harlem, and um, I'm out there pruning actually all the time. And of course, the beginning of the year or the fall is where you do the most savage pruning. And like my rose bushes look like a disaster after I've gotten done with them. You think, how could anything good come out of that? You've killed it. And yet, uh, if you know anything about gardening, that's not exactly what happens at all. Uh, it might feel like death to the rose bush in some ways, and the hardships might feel like death to us. But that's not what's going on. What's going on is God is pruning you to make you bear fruit for him in the world, both in your personal life, but the way that you carry yourself in the world, the way you serve the world around you, the way you come alongside the hungry, the hurting, the oppressed, the lonely, the brokenhearted, that is one of the primary places that we bear fruit because Jesus says here, the primary fruit that I wanted you to bear in your life is love. And greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for their friends. That is my goal for you, that you become love personified, that everything about you is manifested with my love in it. And so Jesus uses the hardships to get us out of our selfishness into a new place of selflessness where love can abound. You know, Malcolm Muggeridge, who I quoted at the beginning, actually says, suffering is so deeply important to the Christian life. He writes this, supposing you eliminated suffering, what a dreadful place the world would be. I would almost rather eliminate happiness, he says. The world would be the most ghastly place because everything that corrects the tendency of this unspeakable little creature, man, to feel over-important and over-pleased with himself would disappear. He's bad enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. Now, so God prunes in order that he might bring out the fruit in our lives. And don't you see that, that that's what the hardships are designed for in your life. God is wanting to change you from glory unto glory. Well, listen, there's one last thing that we need to look at. We've looked at what God does, but now we need to ask the question, but what am I to do? What's my role? And Jesus says it simply here, abide in me, obey my commandments, love one another as I have loved you, but primarily abide in me. If you abide in me, you won't bear fruit. How is that done? How do we remain connected to Jesus? Now you see, on the one hand, you can do nothing to bring about the union that God has brought about in his great act of saving you. He resides in you by grace. And once he has done that, it can't be undone. That's the great news of the Christian life. Once God adopts you, he doesn't unadopt you. Once he comes and makes your soul his home, he never moves out. <laughs> he never abandons the property. But while you can't attain union with Christ, you can more fully realize it. In other words, you can be attentive to it. You can be aware of it. You can cultivate your sense that, oh yeah, that is the reality that's going on in me. And that becomes essential if we're to bear fruit in the way that God desires for us to bear it. And how do we do that? Well, I wanna suggest that one of the primary gifts God has given to us to that end is our imaginations. Probably weren't expecting that. A lot of people think of imagination as make-believe. 
Uh, and sometimes our imaginations are involved in make-believe, but actually our imaginations are, as often as not, used to see what we can't see visibly, but we know is there. Right? And we do that. We use our imaginations for things like that. So right now in this room, uh, there are radio waves and there are cell phone waves bouncing around in our midst. We can't see them. Aren't, they aren't present to the human eye, but we know they're here. And our imagination enables us to sort of heighten the reality of that. Well, similarly, it works in the Christian life. You use your imagination to see what is really there, but it's not visible. God dwelling within you. And what does that look like in actual practice? Well, it looks like the time we spend with God. <laughs> it looks like your reading of the scripture and meditating on it and spending time maybe in silence for a while and recognizing that God is not only in your midst as you read, but there dwelling within you. Uh, it take, it's, it's about praying and connecting with God. You know, there was a, a saint by the name of Ignatius of Loyola who had a particular way of reading scripture that many Christians have benefited over the years uh, from this practice. And it's what are called the Ignatian exercises. But it's simply this. He encouraged us, when we were reading the Gospels in particular, to put ourselves into the narrative, to read ourselves into the story, to imagine that you're there, say, when Jesus is asleep in the boat and there's a storm coming upon them. Or imagine you're on the scene when he feeds the 5,000. Or imagine that you are right there as Lazarus is raised from the dead. Or that you're in the upper room as he utters these words to his disciples. Put yourself there and slow down your reading of the scripture, Ignatius would say. Ask yourself various questions. What's the weather like? <laughs> what are the scents in the air? What are the expressions on people's faces? What are the emotions that you're feeling while you're maybe in the boat with Jesus or you're on the hillside, hungry, weary, but having listened to Jesus? What's going on inside of you? And then what are the expressions on Jesus's face? What's the tone of his voice? Uh, that in doing that, you uh, cultivate that relationship with Jesus in a, in a more intimate way you recognize more fully that union. So that's one of the ways we use our imaginations. But secondly and finally, another way to use our imagination is our ability to see that the hard things in our life aren't just random acts. They aren't just senseless occurrences. Uh, they aren't things that have no meaning. No, they are the things that God is using for your good. Now, some of you will know the name Tim Keller. He was the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, where I'm a pastor now. And a short while ago, Tim was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, stage four pancreatic cancer. And he was recently interviewed uh, on the radio, and they asked him, so how's your fight with cancer going? And Tim just said, oh, my fight's never been with cancer. No, instead, my fight, my battle is with my response to my cancer how I engage the difficulties that are coming into my life. Am I believing that God is still here, that God is good, that he cares, that he's involved, that he's at work? That's what I have to wrestle with. That's my battle of just saying, why don't I just throw in the towel? Or why don't I just like cave into a sort of introspective place and stop looking outward or become bitter and hardened 
No, that's the battle, right? And that's the battle for each of us when hard things come in your life. Do you believe God is good, that he cares, that he is involved? That involves your imagination as well. God is fashioning you into a more glorious place. Do you believe that? <laughs> that he's making you a place fit for a king to dwell. <laughs> he's changing you from glory to to glory. Listen, God's desire is not only to dwell within you, but that you would know the experience of that. That's what he always intended when he created us in the first place. Don't miss out on it. Trust the gardener at work. Delight in the fact that Christ dwells in you. And then allow him to use you to be fruitful in the world. Jesus beckons you to come to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you call us to abide in you. And we are even more thankful that you abide in the mess that we so often are. But would you do just that, Lord Jesus? Would you dwell in our hearts by faith richly? Would you pour out by your spirit your love into your hearts where you also dwell? And then, Lord, would you make us people who lay down our lives for our friends, who lay down our lives for you, who li whose lives are something beautiful for God. Amen.